Hey, what's going on, everybody? This your boy, Jay Mace. Welcome to another throwback interview from the Time Machine Archives right here on Beyond the Album Cover. This interview right here was conducted around 2006-2007 and is with Kevin Thornton from Color Me Bad. We discussed their origins in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, getting signed to Giant Records, the phenomenon of I Want to Sex You Up in the recording of the CMB album, Time and Chance, and everything else in between. Color Me Bad to me doesn't get enough props for what they did for male pop and R&B groups. And in 1991, I Want to Sex You Up was one of the biggest singles according to Billboard's year-end charts for that year. You can catch this interview along with other episodes of Beyond the Album Cover wherever you get your podcasts. Just type Beyond the Album Cover. Be sure to follow to get notified whenever new content drops. And also video content can be found on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash j5 lowercase j85 and also follow the facebook show page while you're at it facebook.com forward slash beyond the album cover that's all one word and without further ado here's my throwback interview with kevin thornton from color me bad right here on beyond the album cover Hey, what's going down, everybody? This is your boy, Jay Mace, live inside the Time Machine on WUAG 103.0 FM, playing the best in old school hip-hop, R&B, and everything else in between. With me on the phone right now, I have Kevin Thornton, member of the early 90s R&B group, Color Me Bad. Kevin, welcome to the Time Machine. What's happening? How you doing, man? Doing all right. I'm blessed. That's what's up. That's what's up. Now, let's go ahead and get this started. Now, when did you get your start singing before Color Me Bad? I started out in, in uh, well, I sang a little bit in church, and then I, I really started taking it seriously around the eighth grade in junior high school. That's where I actually met Brian, the lead singer of our group. We've known each other since junior high. Okay, now what were some of your favorite songs to sing coming up? Oh, coming up, you know, I used to like Michael Jackson. I used to, uh, uh, I don't know, I liked Cool in the Gang. I mean, just everything that was on the radio at the time, R&B. I loved New Edition. I mean, they were a great inspiration for us. Right. It seems like pretty much every group from that time period pretty much took cues after New Edition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Now, tell me, how did Color Me Bad come about? Well, we were uh, best friends. Actually, like I said, Brian and I had known each other since junior high school. And the other two guys, Mark and Sam, had known each other since grade school. Brian and I had always wanted to sing together. Um, and then in, in high school, we all just, the four of us just hooked up. And we decided to uh, do a talent show at school. And we did this acapella in the midst of, you know, everybody doing all these synthesizers in the Michael Jackson and Prince era. So the uh, four-part harmony without any music was new to everybody, and the girls just went crazy. And so that was just the beginning for it, you know. We just knew once we got that response, that's exactly what we wanted to do. We, we just kept going at it. Mm -hmm. And I had read on some website that um, you guys sang a cappella for John Bon Jovi. Yes. Uh, I, was, I was actually working. Well, actually, Brian and I were working at a movie theater, and uh, John Bon Jovi came in. Brian was off at the time, uh, and I was tearing tickets. And I noticed this guy that looked like John Bon Jovi, and I, and I was like, no way. And so I turned around, and I saw his, uh, I saw the jacket that said Bon Jovi tour. And I called the rest of the guys to come up. We came, they came up. I, I faked like I was sick so I could get off of work. Ended up 
them, you know, by themselves afterwards and asked, could we sing a cappella for them? And they allowed us to and then offered us a spot uh, on the show, you know, right before they uh, right before they came on for about, I think, you know, 15,000 people or so. Mm, so what was that experience like for you guys opening up for John Bon Jovi? Bon Jovi, biggest group in the world, and you guys haven't even made your market. Yeah, it was, it was I mean... It was, I mean, needless to say, I mean, we were very popular after we went back to school, you know. I mean, everybody was, was really trying to ask us a lot of questions about the group and everything, and we were excited. I mean, that was a big motivational boost for us, mm. definitely. So basically, popularity skyrocketed after that around the hallways and the cafeteria. I'm sorry, say that again? I said basically pretty much popularity skyrocketed from the hallway and the cafeteria after that. Yeah, even more so. I mean, we were kind of popular at the time just from the singing. Uh, a lot of people knew who we were, and we would uh, serenade a lot of girls, and, and, you know, people would come up to us and ask us to, uh, you know, sing for their girlfriends or whatever. But even in in school, um, you know, we couldn't sing anywhere, practice anywhere without drawing a crowd. As a matter of fact, one, one time we were uh, thinking we were going to get some privacy, and uh, decided we were going to practice in the boys, in the men's best uh, bathroom because acoustics was really good. Man, girls started coming in <laughs> into the men's room. They told us we couldn't sing in the hallways anymore. Because you was attracting a big crowd. Yeah, because we were attracting a huge crowd, right. Right, and definitely ladies were flocking in. You know what that means. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right, now tell me about the big break. That came when Cool in the Gang came came to town. Well, Cool in the Gang uh, came to town. I had just graduated. Uh, I think it was a guy's last year of uh, of school. And um, no, I think it might have been my graduating year in 1987. And um, Cool and Gang had come in for a concert, and they were uh, doing some sort of benefit for people with perfect attendance and. I was actually at church at this particular time at a church service. The rest of the guys snuck into the into a into the function, you know, sung their way through, end up meeting uh, Cool and the Gang and the road manager. Called me up, told me to come to to whatever hotel it was, and we ended up singing for the road manager. And what happened was, uh, we kept in contact with him for a few years, probably about a year and a half or so. And he and his business partner uh, eventually in 1989 uh, flew us from uh, Oklahoma to New York to pursue a record contract. Okay, now who were some of the who were some of the other labels that were recording you guys besides Giant? They were recording us. Yeah, that were um courting you guys, trying to get trying to um oh. offer you guys a deal. Well, I mean, it's kind of hard. I can't say really that anybody was actually courting us. It was more of us trying to pursue right. the deal, you know, basically because we, I mean, we shopped to everybody. and I mean, some of them just flat out said no. Uh, we kind of got a, a, a backlash from the new kids on the block. People had kind of gotten, I mean, I hate to say it, but they were, had gotten kind of tired of them. And once they saw the picture, they loved us when they heard the music. But then when they saw the picture and saw, you know, three white guys and, and me, then they uh, Turn kind of turned their nose to, towards us and said, we don't need another new kids on the block. Or they would say, yes, 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 and then get ready to sign. And all of a sudden, 
I remember we had gone to a, a record company. Everything was a go. We had gone up to go sign, and the people never came out. They sent somebody else and said, no. Wow. decided to go against it. So uh, once Giant finally came through for us, I mean, that was a huge, huge, uh, I mean, that was exciting for us. I mean, extremely exciting for us. Right. Now, how did you guys land on the New Jack City soundtrack? Well, Giant Records is the ones who um, actually hosted that soundtrack. And uh, they were actually looking for, it was a new label. They were actually looking for new artists as well as established artists for this particular soundtrack. So um, I guess we kind of fit the bill for it. Um, not a lot of people know, but we were initially supposed to do the song that Christopher Williams did. Uh, I'm Dreaming? Dreaming, yeah. That's the one. Because we, we had done some, some writing prior to that. Uh, we had done some demos and stuff in, uh, in Oklahoma. So we went back to Oklahoma to go do some writing with, with a gentleman by the name of Hamza Lee. While we were out there, uh, Giant sent uh, a guy by the name of Dr. Freeze, and I can't think of the other guy who did the uh, the uh, Dreaming song, but those two came out. We heard the song Dreaming, but then uh, one of the the uh, giant representatives said, Freeze, throw in that other joint that, I, that you let me hear, and it was Sex You Up. We heard it, fell in love with it, but the thing of it was was it didn't have any words to it other than the, the chorus. So that's why you ended up with two different versions because we literally went into the studio. Uh, Freeze came in a lot later uh, while we were recording, and we re had written a brand new version. So that's why you have one version on our album and one on the New Jack City soundtrack. We wrote the one that was actually, I think, featured on the New Jack City soundtrack. Wow, and I believe the other guy you were referring to besides Dr. Freeze was uh, Stanley Brown, right? Stanley Brown, that's right. That is correct. Okay, now, the song. Now, talk about the whirlwind that came with that song. Yeah, we were, we were kind of, initially we were, we, were, uh, we were worried about it because, you know, at the time, I know it sounds kind of crazy, but now, by some of the lyrics that are out there at the, at the moment, but... Uh, really prior to that, no one was as upfront with what was being said as, as we were at that particular time, except for a song by George Michael called I Want Your Sex. And um, we remembered how some places were kind of banning it, you know, and the problems, we didn't want to come out with a lot of controversy, you know, upfront. Nobody, I kid you not, no one knew how big that song was going to be. It sounds odd now with the success that it had, but no one, not the record company, not us, no one that we even let hear. They were like, well, you know, yeah, it's, it's kind of different, but it's okay, it's all right. That's why it shocked us when it just blew up all over the world. Because mm, I remember I was six years old, and around 91, you couldn't go anywhere. But like, ah, oh, TikTok, you don't stop. I mean, every five minutes, radio station, planet, planet, and planet. And it was the number two song of 1991, right behind Brian Adams' Everything I Do, I Do For You from the Robin Hood Men's and Tights soundtrack. Right, right, yeah. 
Right, and I believe it was because of the success of that song, Giant was basically rushing you guys to complete CMB. Correct. Actually, yeah. Um, and and the song actually would have gone a lot bigger. Giant uh, pulled the plug on it um, because it, people stopped buying the soundtrack <laughs> and they just started buying the single. And um, we had, I think, two weeks to finish the album. We had probably about half the album done at that time, um, if that much. And we just started rushing, just going through, you know, writing and, and getting with different producers and, and trying to finish up that album. Right. And also there were other big hits off your debut album, I Adore Me or More, All for Love, and uh, basically it was just a good album, and I believe it sold $7 million. Yes, sir. Somewhere around there. Somewhere around that number. Now, tell me about that performance on Soul Train, where you guys were performing I Want to Sex You Up, and you were wearing the different colored suits. I think Sam had a green one, Brian had like an orange one, Mark had like a purple one, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, uh, we had a, a stylist uh, by the name of, at the time her name was Lisa Smedley, and uh, she... She had that concept. Well, I mean, I can't say that she came up with it. The colors was like the theme, the end theme. So she's, she was saying, well, you know, uh, the thing that's really coming out are all these colors. So what um, I suggest you do is, you know, each one of you all have a different color, and this is what I present to you. And she presented it. We loved her her uh, her taste, and, and uh, that's what we went through and went to, and it, it hit. Right, and basically, when that song came out, everybody was like, calling me bad, you know, you guys were a full-fledged R&B group, but just that, you just had that pop stigma attached. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we were, you know, we were versatile, uh, basically, because you had, you had a lot of different, within our group, you had a lot of different styles, a lot of different uh, artists that we listened to. I mean, we listened to everything from gospel to rock to pop to r&b the country you know we listen to to a lot of things you know and that's what came out in our music right and you also had like labels like sam was the kenny g looking guy mark had the george michael five o'clock shadow working brian was like the pretty boy of the group and kevin you were the the black guy yeah yeah i was the brother yeah, the brother of the group. Now, it was because of that song, you guys, I believe, won uh, two Soul Train Music Awards back in 92, right? Right. You know, yeah, I think it was I think it was Best R&B Group of the Year and um, Song of the Year for the Soul Train when you guys won an AMA. Right, right. Right. And five Grammy nominations. It would have been nice to win a Grammy, but we didn't quite get it. Wow, yeah, so, but basically, you guys were pretty much on the map based off of that one song. Yeah, yeah, that put us on the map for sure. Mm -hmm. Now, you can correct me on this or not. I heard in Korea, they changed the title from I Want to Sex You Up to I Want to Love You Up. Well, we actually did a version called I Want to Love You Up for, like, the Bible Belt states and the, uh, <clears throat> in certain places that would not play I Want to Sex You Up, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, tell me a little bit about Giant Records at that time, because it was the home of Pop R&B acts. You had you guys, Jade, Jeremy Jordan, and Good To Go. Uh-huh. So tell me, yeah, um, go ahead. They were, just, they were just, you know, they are just looking for new talent. You had um, Irvin Azoff, uh, who uh, I 
think he came from MCA, had MCA uh, fame. Uh, also, he was the uh, the manager of the Eagles, or at least a few of the guys in the group, Eagles. And, uh, you know, basically, and then you had Cassandra Mills, who was Stephanie Mills' uh, uh, sister-in-law. She was uh, the they and our person there and and basically they were just looking for as much talent as they they possibly could you know brand new acts a brand new sound right now what was your opinion of the group jay who were your label mates <laughs> man jay i love i love them i can't tell you how much i love them uh because i'm married now but i i i you know i jade was hot yeah 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 jade was they, they was uh, very, they were very talented girls, sweet, very very sweet girls. Cause um I had read through Joy Marshall, who's a member of Jay MySpace page, that she said "I Want to Love You." That hit from the class at soundtrack came about from "I Want to Sex You Up." Could have very well, that maybe I didn't I didn't know that. Right, so I'm telling you someday you didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> All right, now tell me about the time you guys coming off of CMB and you guys like, oh man, we got to smash album out the box and we got to come at them with something bigger and better. Talking about like the second album? Yeah. Well, we, uh, we, we had toured and toured and toured and by the time the tour had ended, probably the smartest thing for us to have done was to uh, jump in and just done another album. But we were, I can't say we were burnt out, but we were just really exhausted because we had done tour after tour, back to back, had been going off the road, on the road for so long. But we also knew that the next album that we did was uh, was going to be a make it or break it type album. Um, and so what we wanted to do, we wanted to make sure that we took our time and we wanted to really be creative. And... To me, the second, just personally, the second album was one of our best pieces of, of work ever. Um, if you ever listen to it, you'll hear a lot of uh, the throwback artists. Uh, we listened to a lot of funk. We had uh, we had uh, Bootsy Collins on that album. Slow Motion. Had, yeah, he was on Slow Motion, and he was on he was on a couple of other cuts as well. Um, and we uh, we had. James Brown's horn section, uh, Fred Wesley, Wesley, we had Maceo, um, we had the keyboardist from James Brown. We had a lot of, and then we listened to a lot of, of the uh, old school, like uh, uh, Larry Graham and, and uh, Sly Stone. So you hear that throwback feel to it. Um, the only thing, the only problem I think that we had, well... To save face, I you know I don't want to disrespect anybody, but there were some issues that we had with the record company, and then at the time we were also going through some some problems with uh, with our managers, our managers and accountants and such, and so it threw us back. We had to take some time to kind of deal with that, and it was a although it was a a wonderful time for us as far as artistically. Uh, those memories were very hard for us because we were dealing with the uh, the dark side of the industry that people just don't really know about, mm. heard about, but it's another thing to actually experience it. Right, and I believe you guys were touring with Paul Abdul, right? 
Yeah, now that was fun. We did two tours with Paula Abdul. We opened for her, and and on our off days we would uh <clears throat> we would do a do a headlining tour as well. Right. So I know Time and Chance was like a big R&B hit because I remember the video was getting played on like BET. Yeah, yeah. We had a lot of different, a lot of different styles on that. You know, you had the, you know, the record companies are always going to want whatever's hot at the time. And then you had the chronic out with, uh, with Snoop and, and Dr. Dre and all of that. So course they wanted some songs like that put us with those producers and you know we were again versatile we could write and, uh, to almost anything so we did the time and chance with uh, uh, DJ Pooh who did a lot of uh, Ice Cube stuff and we came up with, with time and chance and we had an, another song I can't remember we did with him but uh did you know we did we worked also with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis on that that album and a lot of great producers Michael uh, I mean David Foster as well. All right, now how did you feel about the line that Eric Sermon from EPMD threw in crossover? He said, "Come back around the block, bump color me bad to the uh, tick tock." Ah uh, yeah, well, you know everybody has a right to their own opinion. You had a lot of haters out there. The, the unfortunate thing is that, you know, when people sit around and and uh, put that kind of stuff on music uh, and don't even know you, you know, I've gotten called all kinds of things, even, you know, over the airwaves, and people don't even know me, you know what I'm saying? They will call me sellout or gay or whatever it may be, and they don't even know who I am, you know, so I, I, you just kind of got to let it go. Right. Now it was DJ DJ Freeze that came up with the Betty Wright sample for "I Want to Sex You Up." Uh, Doctor Freeze, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Cause I know that Candyman, rap out of L.A., came up with the same sample for "Knocking Boots." You guys came with the sample first, right? Or was it uh, him? I don't know who was first. Actually, I can't. I can't remember. I mean, cause actually, uh, I think no. Come to think of it, I think we were first. I believe so. I believe so, but I don't quote me on it. Right, hot record. Kids that just goes to show you dig through your mom and daddy's old records that they used to use back in the day for the blue light basement party, and you'll find some new beats. <laughs> Do that now. You make sure that you you pay for them and get them approved. That's for sure. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. Royalties, all that good stuff. Clearance, get all that stuff straight before you ever sample. That's right. And if you are singing singers. Sing because I know this was around the time when well this was a year after the whole Milli Vanilli thing but was there still right. kind of like shockwaves through the industry even though it was a year after that? Well, we didn't we didn't feel a, a lot of it. I mean, it actually worked to our benefit, um, you know, in a sense that uh, everybody kept being uh, pressured to actually sing live, and so um, I. Uh, I mean, we, we just, you know, that was just more of an opportunity for us to show what we do that we can actually sing and, and sing a cappella, you know. Right. Now, what was one of your favorite songs that you and the fellas like to sing a cappella at one of your shows? Uh, Daddy's Home. We, we used to do a song, uh, Daddy's Home. We used to also do the song, uh, I don't even know what it's called, but uh, the movie Lean On Me with uh, Morgan Freeman, 
was a song where the guys in the group uh, riff. Oh, yeah, riff. Riff got caught in the bathroom, and then they changed up the alma mater. Well, we we took that song in their harmonies and and uh, kind of changed the words to uh, reflect Jesus, and uh, and we used to like doing that a lot. Right. Now, was there a point in the group where you guys were like, man, yo, we have more talented, but it's kind of like, I want to sex you up, pretty much came out the box. It was kind of like, you were like, just knowing as the guys that did, I want to sex you up. Well, I mean, that never really got to us. Uh, that never really got to us because, you know, we, that, I mean, I want to sex you up gave us our, our break. You know, we, we didn't down it or disrespect it. We did not want to get pigeonholed. Uh, whereas, like, you know, one of the things, like I said, the record companies do is they find something that's hot and they want to keep duplicating it, you know, you, or you'll get a lot of producers that want to send you songs and they want to recreate, I want to sex you up. And we're like, okay, and sex you up was what it was. We need to move on to something else. We want to show another side of it. But we never... I mean, it's not like we got tired of it, though. Right. Now, was it John's idea to put out the Young, Gifted, and Bad remix album? No, we wanted to do that, actually. We uh, we wanted to do that that album. There were a lot of uh, remixes that, that people submitted that we want, that we just thought were just wonderful. Uh, and plus, I think on that album, we had a song... Uh, I, I can't even think of it. It was a, it was a, it was a song that we did for a soundtrack movie soundtrack, Mo, Mo Money, and uh, I think for us to actually have it released, uh, Giant had us, you know, do a remix album. So we wanted to also put that on there. Right now, what was one of your most memorable shows with the band? One of the most memorable. Yeah. Oh man, I. We got time. It's your time. It's kind of hard to say, you know, because every night was just, just. I mean, I loved it. I mean, that's one of the things that I truly loved was just being out on stage. I mean, every night was just, just a blast because we literally had a ball um, on tour, you know, every night. We used to take big super soakers, uh, the water guns, and have water fights on stage. We used to... As a matter of fact, uh, sometimes as the band would play and we take a break, we'd be behind the band, shooting them up, uh, shooting their behinds up with those super soakers. I mean, we just did all kind of practical jokes and, and interacted with the with the crowd. I mean, and, and if there was there are a few times in which we actually performed in front of like a big pool where there was a big huge pool outside, and and right at the end, you know, they're always beckoning you to come jump in or whatever. I wouldn't care. I just jump in, clothes and all. Right. So you purify yourself in the pool and not in the waters of Lake Minnetonka. <laughs> As the purple one would say. True, true. <laughs> now, when was it the point for you that you decided to go the Christian gospel route? Well, in 1997, and, you know, there was a lot of things going on. You know, that was I believe that was the year Tupac had got killed. A lot of uh, we had again we had seen a lot of negativity um, in the uh, in the industry. A lot of people that were uh, supposedly behind us and for us just totally 
turned against us, uh, and it even affected us as friends uh, to an extent. And um, even in my personal life, I began to, uh, I had my own addictions. It wasn't drugs or alcohol, but I had a sexual addiction. You know, the one thing that I, I just, if I wanted to just stop, it was, it was very difficult for me just to stop. It was a true sexual addiction, and uh, that uh caused me to have, you know, a lot of children out of wedlock um, and, you know, miscarriages and abortions or whatever it may have been. On top of all of that, you know, just uh, just feeling empty on the inside is what was going on. So uh, I just started saying there's more to life than this. You know, here I am, people are calling me and, and writing to me and screening out my name and all this stuff, and I'm miserable. I'm, I'm, I'm so miserable and feeling all alone. And I knew that I needed to get back with God but didn't know how. So I began to pray and read the Bible, but it seemed like the more I did it, the worse things had gotten. And finally, uh, June 1st, 1997 is when I just surrendered. I said, you know what, God, I'm tired of fighting you, and if Jesus, you want to be the Lord and the Savior of my life, you, like you keep saying, that you got to change me. You've got to turn my life around. And that's exactly what he did. And I realized that I was at a place exactly where he wanted me, completely submitted to him, because I realized that I couldn't do it on my own. And he just really filled me with the Holy Spirit, and, and it changed my life. And, and at that point, um, I still stayed with the group for about a year. And I told God, I said, whenever you want me to leave, that's when I'll leave. I told the guys in the group, God has changed my life. And uh, whenever he wants me to leave, that's when I'm going to leave. Well, we had gone through a lot of problems. Uh, we switched record labels, uh, switched management. And uh, at one point, we didn't even know if the group was going to survive the blows that we had taken. Uh, but we pressed on. As a matter of fact, we were getting ready to sign a huge contract with uh, with Johnny Wright, who uh, he at the time had both Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, and he was looking at us. So uh, things were really, really looking up for us. So October 31st, 1998 is when God actually spoke to me because I had been praying, God, when you want me to leave the group, make it plain, make it clear. I was kind of confused because here I was, I was singing uh, all of these songs now that I was starting to feel convicted about being in, you know, clubs and, and girls hitting on me and stuff like that and, and not, you know, trying to get with them like I used to. I was feeling very convicted and wanted to really tell people of the goodness of Jesus Christ and how he changed my life. But all of a sudden, you know, what kind of witness would I have been? If I were to say that and then all of a sudden start singing all of these songs like I Want to Sex You Up and, you know, Farmer's Daughter Got a One-Track Mind and, and all of these, these sexually explicit songs, it would have just killed the witness. Definitely, definitely, definitely. Um, now I want to back up for a minute. You're familiar with the R&B group High Five. I am, yeah. Um, What was your reaction when you heard about Tony Thompson's death? Man, I was heartbroken, you know. Um... Uh, we we were label mates with Tony for a short period of time, and uh, actually Tony 
lived at one particular time uh, when he was younger, right around the corner from me in Oklahoma. I didn't know him that well because he was younger than I was, so he hung with uh, well the girl that I was actually seeing uh, around the corner from me. Her brothers, her younger brothers, used to hang out with Tony, but I knew her, knew his uh, cousin quite well. We all went to a school together, but um, so we, I mean, we were kind of in the same vicinity a lot, but never really got to hook up except for in the studio a few times later on after we both had made it. I had heard uh, that he possibly had a a drug problem or or something. Didn't know how true it was. Um, But nonetheless, when I heard about it, I was really heartbroken. And I did go to the wake they had a, a wake in uh, here in Fort Worth, and they had the funeral actually in Waco. And I did share some words and and got to uh, actually meet his, his uh, fiance. But it's a it's a great loss. Definitely, definitely, because I remember when um, he came out with the Sexational album and they had I Wanna Love Like That on there, and I'm like, hot song, but it just didn't blow up like it was supposed to. Yeah. Right. 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 Now, what are some of like the pitfalls of the music biz? Because outsiders looking in, they only see what the media portrays, the glitz and the glamour, but they don't see the half of it. Right, right. So what exactly do you want to know? Basically, any and everything. Let's keep it uh, real. Just the, behind, the, behind the scenes? Yeah, behind the scenes, labels, you know, the, the whole shebang. Well, see, the thing of it is, is that it's just... You know, I look at it in a few different ways. Number one, it is strictly a business. You know, a lot of a lot of guys, I think now are getting, uh, especially in more recent years, they're becoming more business-minded and realizing that it's not just about your talent uh, by any means. And a lot of folks will, I mean, understandably, I know what it's like to say, you know, hey, and we're just, we're just in it for the music because you just have the love of what you do. But you got to realize that there's whatever you don't know, somebody else knows and can and will exploit that most definitely. So you've got to be very uh, cognizant of that. You need to surround yourself with people that are trustworthy, uh, people that know the business, uh, get a good lawyer and accountant. Um, but it's a very shrewd, shrewd business. And, and quite frankly, it's, it's uh I mean, I've just gotta gotta call it what it is. And there's a lot of immoral aspects to the business. Uh, that's why once I actually uh, went Christian, I wasn't necessarily pursuing uh, just a record deal, even on the Christian side. You know, I wanted to be able to have complete control over what I do and what I say, basically. Uh, but there's a lot of, you know, there's everything that's accessible to you. You know, there's a lot of people that aren't, especially once you blow up, you have a lot of people around you that aren't going to tell you what you need to hear. They're just going to tell you whatever you want to hear. And it's easy to get caught up into that, you know. But that's not true, true life. Right. So basically with the whole industry thing, you don't want to end up like Prince and Scrawling Slave on your face. Say that again. I was saying with the music business side of it, you don't want to, you didn't want to end up like Prince and have slave on your face. Right, right, right. Right. Well, also yeah. goes to show you, kids, 
get some books to understand the music business because if you don't read the fine print, chances are you you're locked in a bad contract. <laughs> right, right. And see, you know, a lot of a lot of folks will just uh just sign their lives away without without knowing and, and you know, you get dealing with lawyers and lawyers get paid to write up contracts that you cannot understand using all kind of words and uh like you said, the fine print and, and things hidden in, in there. You have to have a professional that's trustworthy, uh, that you're paying, um that you choose, not your manager or anybody else, but that you choose, uh, that will uh, be able to look over your contracts, that's looking out for your best interest. Surround yourself with people that are uh, that are on your side. Otherwise, you will be exploited. Mm-hmm. Now, what are you up to present day, up to right now? Right now, God is, uh, again, in 98, God called me out of the music industry not knowing what he was going to call, call me to do. I walked away from the huge contract and, and everything and pretty much started everything over. Um, God humbled me in such a way because uh, his plan for me is ministry. And in doing so, he had to truly, truly uh, purge me of a lot of things and actually humble me. So put me back in the workforce, uh, surrounded me by people I never would have ever met ever in my life and and through that I've been able to learn how to witness to people on an individual level uh, interact with folks and and uh, basically I'm just uh, uh, I'm doing that in in ministry I go to different churches share my testimony I became a licensed minister in uh, August of of 2006 and uh, I've been married for almost uh, 10 years it'll be 10 years this year and just being daddy. Mm. That's, it. That's about it. Congratulations on all of that, my man. Thank you. Thank you. Yo. Thank you. And there's more to come. I mean, God is going to do some, some major things. I mean, my, my focus is no longer on myself and, and you know, what I can get out of life, et cetera. It's uh, about service and, and really spreading the gospel. Right. Now, you still keep in touch with the other guys? Uh, Sam, it's hard to catch, you know, he's doing a lot of writing, uh, you know, he's done a lot of, lot of writing, he's, a lot of people don't know, he, he was instrumental in discovering Jessica Simpson, he, uh, he wrote for, uh, Celine Dion, wrote that Fantasia song, I believe, and, uh, Anastasia, and a lot of folks, so he, he's real busy, you know, so it's hard to catch up with him, uh, I, if anyone, I talk a lot to Mark. I do talk a lot to Mark. We talk uh, probably a few times a month. Mm-hmm. How about Brian? Don't talk to him too much. Kind of once every blue moon? Not even. Not even once every blue moon? No. Okay. Now, what is your take on the New Jack Swing era and the pop era of the late 80s and early 90s because I see kids my age, they they listen to like groups like New Edition, Troop, High Five, you guys, and that whole style is kind of like coming back slowly but surely but in a different twist. Well, I mean, everything everything in life uh, comes around full circle and, and, you know, everything that, uh, that, uh, 
even the stuff that we did, man, you know, was a throwback to somebody else. Nothing's ever original. It's just a brand new twist. So I mean, it's gonna, it's gonna happen. I, I just, you know, I, I ain't much, much to say on it other than, you know, what goes around comes around. It comes around full circle for sure. Right now, when it's all said and done, how do you want Kevin Thornton to be remembered? I want Kevin Thornton to be remembered first and foremost as a man who truly loved God, a man that truly had a heart for people and just genuinely uh, kind and loving and giving, basically. That's what I want people to see. I want people more so than anything else. The, the, the success with Color Me Bad was great. Um, me as an individual, wonderful, but I really want people to say, Kevin Thornton truly loved Jesus. And in doing so, because God is love, that that will reflect that I was a loving, loving individual. Mm. Now, before we conclude this interview, I want you to leave the people that may be listening to this interview some words of inspiration. You want me to leave them with what? Words I'm sorry, I'm on the cell phone. It's kind of hard to hear it a right. couple of times. I was saying, I want you to leave the people that may be listening to this interview with words of inspiration. Okay. First and foremost, since I have it, the honest truth that I can give or the best advice that I can give anyone is this. Life by itself is hard enough as it is. Life can be filled with, with so much success, but it means nothing without Jesus Christ. If you don't have Jesus in your life, then everything is useless and futile. So I would suggest that everyone at least give God an opportunity to be active in your life. And through that, the Bible says that if you seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, everything will, will fall into place. It won't always be roses, and everything won't always work out the way you want it to. But everything will be a growing and learning experience. And with God, you will never, ever, ever be alone. Amen. That's my Amen. Amen. Nice words. Nice words. Now, do you have any people that you'd like to shout out before we conclude this interview? I'll just to all the fans that that had supported us all this time, and I you know, I appreciate you, you know, and and anyone listening. Also, you can see uh, more of what I do on my website is www.kevinthornton.com. Or you can get it on www.colormeblessed.org. Okay. So, Repeat those websites again. www.kevinthornton.com or www.colormeblessed.org. All right. Go to those websites, people. Check them out because he's doing some awesome things for his kingdom. Ladies and gentlemen, Time Machine exclusive, Kevin Thornton, formerly of Color Me Bad. I appreciate you doing this interview with me. Hang on the line. Hey, man. God bless. All right.